I've heard that there's a a Chinese curse that goes like this. <clears throat> May you live in interesting times. I don't know if it's Chinese, but I think it's interesting that the uh, suggestion, may you live in interesting times, would be considered a curse. And so we might ask why, why, why would that be so? Because I think it's pretty clear, pretty obvious to, to us that we live in pretty interesting times. And when I consider what makes this time so interesting is that it's clear also that there are uh, extraordinary forces alive in the world, uh, the forces of environmental degradation, uh, political e and economic instability, uh, civil and religious uh, strife, uh, and, and just huge forces at play among the different societies, cultures, and individuals that we share this planet with. And during such times, it's, it's easy to feel that we are just a pawn in someone else's game. And the big game is being played out in the big arena, and we're a little piece. And we get jerked around and moved around, and our, uh, the conditions with which we have to live in life are not of our own choosing. And so it's pretty clear that whether we live with ease or difficulty, pleasure or pain, uh, abundance or deprivation, uh, a feeling of security or vulnerability, uh, many of these conditions are not uh, under our immediate control. And so we are buffeted by extraordinary forces that uh, exert tremendous conditioning effect on our heart and mind. And I think all of us can attest to that without too much difficulty. And it's possible that in such times that uh, any one of us could... Uh, at any time uh, receive the news of a, of a, of a health crisis or a, an economic collapse or a personal tragedy of one sort or another that would just turn our life upside down. And while we do what we can to uh, insulate ourselves from uh, unpredictable conditions, there really isn't anything that can inoculate us from being susceptible to uh, these dramatic and huge forces that are at play. And we only have to look at the events at the beginning of the retreat, at the running of the Boston Marathon, to know that nobody was planning on that, to have that happen to them, or the tsunami in Japan a couple of years ago, people living their lives with a sense of security and abundance and, and relative ease and in a matter of an hour. Life is totally changed.
we all have a tsunami of some sort headed towards us. And we don't know what it looks like, and we don't know when it's going to arrive, and we know that it's inevitable. What can we do to prepare ourselves for that? There is trouble ahead, just as there's trouble behind. And so we need to consider carefully how we can best uh, prepare and uh, take care of ourselves in those conditions. <laughs> because, as George Dreyfus said, happiness is not gratification on the hedonic treadmill, but it's a sense of well-being. And while we may be enjoying right now a fair degree of a sense of well-being, we need to look carefully at the source of that feeling of well-being. If it is outside of us, anything and everything can and will change. And so it's clear, I'm sure, from your work this week in uh, trying to look at your own mind and to understand your own mind and the forces at play there, uh, I'm sure you can see that the qualities of heart that we have access to, that we can draw on with some uh, confidence and with some reliability are really the source of uh, a sense of well-being. <clears throat> so our contingency plans for the troubles ahead are just as we've discovered here, as we have been practicing here, it are, they are the forces of purity in our own mind. I told a story last night of uh, being uh, reminded in a not too kind way that life's unfair. Uh, deal with it. <laughs> and if we're not prepared to hear that from anyone or everyone in our life, uh, we need to prepare so that we can withstand the uh, humiliation, the uh, confront, the disrespect, the aggression, the brutality, the uh, dismissive attitude, being victimized by others' uh, whims, because these are the forces at play in our own personal life. And so what is it? What are the forces that we can marshal to our uh, aid but awareness, patience, understanding, loving-kindness, non-reactivity, uh, truthfulness, honesty, these are the forces that we develop in our heart, in our mind, through this practice. And each one of us, in, in just being here for the short time that we have, has had to uh, confront the limits of your own uh, patience or generosity or uh, understanding. And in that confronting the limits of your own uh, development of these forces, 
we have the opportunity to grow. And so, in some ways, this practice um, brings us face to face with the uh, limits of our own heart. Not as a sign of defeat or limitation or uh, vulnerability, but as an opportunity to grow. And if we engage that, the task of life to develop our own heart, then we will, we will face these um, opportunities willingly and with a joy actually knowing that such challenges uh, strengthen these qualities of the heart. When we think of the different people in our life that we admire for one reason or another, people that we feel are kind or generous or understanding or um, sensitive to your own, your own feelings, their own feelings that you can rely on in time of need. When you think of uh, these people, often they're very ordinary people, but they have some deep pool of uh, strength of heart, strength of mind that uh, they're willing to share with others. We too have all of those qualities within our own heart. <laughs> in fact, these qualities of mind, these qualities of heart are known in the uh, Buddhist tradition, the Theravada Buddhist tradition as the paramis or the forces of purity in our heart. The forces of purity being those qualities of non-greed, non-aversion, and non-delusion that we cultivate with this practice. Generosity, or morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, resolve, loving-kindness, equanimity, truthfulness, wisdom. And even though we might not have known it, all of our work here this week is really cultivating all of these, some more particularly than others, but all of these are being uh, called upon to uh, practice in this way uh, effectively. We have these qualities inherent within us because at times each one of us have been generous or kind or understanding or patient. And yet we also know that we're not always kind, patient, generous when we have the opportunity to be. But by acquiring the knowledge that these are the, uh, the qualities of mind that really most ensure that we'll uh, enjoy a sense of well-being in our life, then there's a, an opportunity to, to choose to develop these uh, qualities intentionally through practice. And while each of these qualities are inherent within us, it's not because we're Buddhist or are doing a Buddhist practice. You know, the, the, these qualities are rather ordinary 
they're rather mundane and there's nothing particularly esoteric or spiritual or religious about them. Good, there are good people all over the face of the earth in every culture, in every religion that are generous and understanding, uh, energetic, willing to share and kind. Even though we see within ourselves that there is, or there are these qualities, and there is room for improvement, it doesn't happen accidentally that we grow in capacity. We really have to uh, choose to make these forces a priority in our life, because the the potential needs to be valued and then uh, recognized as something that um, we prefer in our life. When we imagine, or when you imagine, choosing any one of these qualities to cultivate and develop in your life, patience, generosity, um, truthfulness. Even just contemplating it briefly, you can see that to really make that a practice in every opportunity that you can, it's going to put some pressure on your life. Some of your habits are going to come into view um, quickly. And uh, we're, we're definitely going to have to confront our conditioning and some aspects of our personality that is not as noble or as well-meaning as these qualities. But why shouldn't we? Why shouldn't we take the opportunity to develop those qualities that make us better? that make us uh, more human and humane, that really develop and enhance the potential that each one of us has within us. After all, what are we here for? Why, why not make the best use of our time here? Even though as, as Carol has mentioned, and as I have referred to many times over, uh, a large part of this practice is coming to recognize the way things have come to be. But the way things have come to be isn't the way things always will be or has to be. It's just conditions up till now, or conditions, uh, current conditions, reveal the way things have come to be. And yet our own intention and our own valuing of these purifying forces in the mind and the choice to make them a priority or a practice in our life is also some of the conditions of the way things have come to be, if we so choose. But it's through mindfulness practice that we undertake the cultivation of any of these forces. And so these are the practices that we as householders 
uh, have the opportunity to uh, cultivate in our domestic life, in our professional life, in our civic and social life. Because let me ask, just ask you, is there ever a day goes by when you don't have the opportunity to be more patient, more generous, more honest, more loving, less reactive? Every day we're faced with innumerable opportunities to cultivate or to practice these qualities. And yet, if we're not aware of the opportunity, if we don't remember that these are possible ways of responding, rather than falling into our current default setting of reactivity, then we won't develop them. And so it requires mindfulness. The function of mindfulness is to remember, to remember that in this situation, more patience is an option. More kindness is an option. Choosing to be generous is an option. And if we don't remember that, we won't practice it. And so all of these are mindfulness practices that uh, we don't need to be sitting on a cushion, you don't need to be on retreat, you don't need to be a Buddhist, you don't need to be, uh, you don't even have to announce to anybody that you're doing it. You can be a kind of a stealth Buddhist or a, you know, kind of an anonymous uh, kind person, uh, an anonymous benefactor to others. Because any of these uh, qualities of mind uh, on display is a benefit not just to the actor, not just to the one who cultivates and develops these qualities, but they're all acts of kindness and compassion to others. So when you think about doing something good for yourself while at the same time doing something good for others, what is more effective and useful and universally appreciated than the cultivating of these qualities? Is really the practice of being a good human being in any culture. But because the Buddha happened to identify these qualities and itemized them or identified them as the qualities of his journey, I just want to mention that the characteristic of a Buddha is someone who has developed these qualities of mind to a default setting. Meaning, these are the qualities of mind that most quickly and forcefully arise in the mind in every challenging situation. So when faced with a difficulty that might provoke anger, frustration, disappointment, the Bodhisattva has developed the response of love, truthfulness, and energy. Think about it. How different would your life be if you responded to the difficulties and the challenges and the, you know, uh, of your life with 
joy, patience, understanding, non-reactivity, love for the perpetrator, (laughs) or love for the one who's provoking, pushing your button. We We can't imagine, really, how different our life would be if that was the automatic response of our heart. Well, that's what a Buddha has done. A bodhisattva is one who has made the aspiration to become a Buddha, to develop these qualities of heart to such a degree that they are the default setting in every situation. It can be done. We have a, we have a, a model of how, how to do it. And we know within ourselves, just from our own limited practice even, that it's possible. Just look at the, the change in your own understanding or your own tranquility of mind or your own clarity of mind in a week of practice. It's noticeable. Now just do that for the rest of your life. I don't mean you need to be binging on Dharma in a retreat for the rest of your life. Nobody wants to live this kind of lifestyle. But the qualities of heart in mind that we're developing here, we can develop at home, at work, at play, outside of a retreat, while talking, walking, not being silent, and having fun. If we remember. And that's where all of life really benefits from mindfulness. Because mindfulness, the function of mindfulness is to remember. Just don't forget. Don't forget to be there for your life. And if we remember, then these forces are there in their fledgling and potential form. And we can call on them to the extent that we remember that these are options in our life. It's interesting that all of these paramis, these ten forces that the Buddha identified as the forces of purity, they're all practices of mindfulness, they're all practices of letting go, and they're all happiness practices. So just to identify a couple. Generosity, of course, we understand that generosity is sharing or offering something to others. But the first requirement or the first letting go of practicing generosity is we learn to let go of attachment. The whole path of awakening is learning to let go of attachment. While it may be in the act of generosity, letting go of your attachment to things or material goods, it is the same activity of mind, learning to let go of things, as learning to let go of opinions, let go of false ideas, let go of impatience. And so just the very learning how to let go and the value of letting go by letting go of attachment is a powerful lesson that is applicable across the whole spectrum of our life. Living with a sense of integrity or living with a moral life of not causing harm to others is really choosing 
not to harm yourself by harming others, by how you speak, how you act, and to be to recognize the kind of uh, the relational world in which we live. Everything we do impacts others more than we know. Even sitting here for a week, seemingly self-absorbed with your own mind and body and doing your stuff. And yet there are those that know you're here and those who are expecting you home tomorrow or soon who will benefit whether they know it or not or how they know it or how it'll benefit them just by the quality of your being. And while that may not have been our intention, and it certainly didn't seem like we were doing it for others, we were just trying to get through the week, get through the sitting, <laughs> get through whatever, actually it does have a pretty profound effect on the way we live and everyone we live with. Energy is an in interesting practice of letting go of inertia and the one that I have seen a lot, energy is letting go of procrastinating. Now, do you ever have a to-do list that just never shrinks? Changes, some things come off, but more things get added on. And have you ever noticed how thinking and worrying and kind of fretting and stewing about doing something takes longer, more effort, and is more suffering than just doing it? How many times do we have to see that before we learn the lesson that procrastinating doesn't save you any time, any energy, or any frustration? It's so much easier just to do it when you think of it. Resolve or uh, determination in the mind is really the uh, letting go of aimless wandering, aimless meandering or dissipating your energy in a diffuse, non-productive way. Plenty of web surfing is just like that. <laughs> and yet, we do it. And why? Because the energy of, of kind of aimless wandering on the, on the web doesn't just stay on the web. It's a habit of mind that we're cultivating and developing and strengthening as we do it. Everything we do really does matter. Equanimity is an interesting uh, force of purity because it's letting go of dramatizing ordinary and normal events. Let me just mention everything that you experience. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to be dismissive. I don't want to be in denial of the extraordinariness of conditions in life. But everything we experience is normal, no matter what you think of it. It's all pretty normal. There are bad things that happen to people. I won't deny that. I don't want to normalize it and say it's okay. By saying normal, I don't mean it's okay. I just mean, you're not the only one. And yet, so often, it doesn't take much 
and we're just kind of inflamed with the kind of the uniqueness of it happening to me and dramatizing it in a most reactive way when reactivity of mind is actually a kind of suffering. But it's a choice we have. And we can dramatize the ordinary or we can recognize that this is the way it is. This is the way things have come to be, not only for me, but for many people. It's ordinary, it's normal, it's not a, it's not a big drama. And why is it that we need to dramatize our life? Are our, are our lives so empty and so boring and so ordinary and so mundane that we've got to magnify the insignificant to a crisis proportion? We do, at times. So many of these um, forces of purity we're familiar with and you hear talked about in retreats or maybe have undertaken the practice of generosity, loving kindness, equanimity, the uh, right speech, right action of uh, morality, practicing patience. These, these are all fairly common, uh, well-known practices in in this tradition, certainly here at Spirit Rock. But there's one force of purity that we don't hear so much about that I want to speak about tonight. And it's called Aditana Parami. It is the perfection of resolve or determination or resoluteness in our mind. Because it was a, a necessary quality in the Bodhisattva's path of awakening. And when you think of the ascetic Sumedha at the time of Dipankara Buddha who vowed to become a Buddha, aspired to become a Buddha, and had that aspiration confirmed by Dipankara Buddha, and then for hundreds of lifetimes took birth in all all the realms in all kinds of pos the most challenging situations in order to develop these paramis the most challenging situations just so he could cultivate and and develop these qualities of mind and we think now why did he do that why would somebody willingly take on so much challenging, uh, difficult, uh, confrontational uh, meeting of your limits in order to grow and strengthen these qualities of mind? And could we do it willingly for lifetimes? What would it take? Well, it takes resolve. It takes a quality of heart that, that knows this is the direction I'm going. And no matter what conditions I meet, and no matter how difficult or how challenging or how frustrating or how overwhelming they might seem, I'm going to face them willingly, knowing that I will grow in some wholesome quality of mind. That's what it takes. A willingness to, you know, kind of keep the intention 
to grow in capacity of, uh, in, in wholesomeness, really. Developing more of our best qualities of mind. The Bodhisattva undertake or, or made the resolve to awaken, to become a Buddha. We don't need to do that. We don't need to become Buddha. We can take the resolve to just be more patient <laughs> or to get up when the alarm rings or you know, whatever, to, you know, to, to be a little more kind when we're commuting and drivers are kind of not being nice. But to make that resolve, to make a resolve, or to to strengthen the, the possibility of resolve in our own heart, we need to understand why we're doing it. We need to apply energy to the opportunities that we are faced with. And we need to be honest enough to see whether we really are cultivating uh, a wholesome state of mind or just a resentful you know, enduring mind. Because aditana or resolve is not a grim, forced, you know, kind of mm, grit your teeth, uh, hunch your shoulders, furrow your brow, clench your fist, get on with it. But it's an open, receptive uh, awareness of the way things are and meeting it willingly whatever it is. It's not struggling. It's not about struggling to get something quickly or being stiff or rigid, closed in your mind. It's not obstinate. It's not prejudiced. It's not even opened. It's not closed to uh, other possibilities. But it does offer a kind of stability of mind that we can come to rely on if you know that you've made a resolve to always do something, initially it can be really hard. Every time you're confronted with an option, you might have to reconsider and re-commit to the resolve. But in time, the momentum of that understanding and the understanding of the value of it really uh, comes to support you. Several years ago when we were offering month-long retreats on Maui. Um, on the first month-long retreat, uh, a woman came from New York who uh, wanted to do a month-long retreat because during that time she would be celebrating her 20th year of sobriety in, in AA. And so I said to her on her uh, sober day, sober birthday, I said, wow, 20, year, 20 years of, uh, of commitment. That, that's really, that's pretty fantastic. It must be easier now. It must be really easy to just kind of, And she said, no, it isn't. And I said, what do you mean it isn't? She says, every day. Every day I have to recommit to this decision for 20 years. And it, it made me think about that, that a resolve or a commitment is a living thing. It's not, uh, you know, you make a commitment, forget it, because, oh, you made the commitment. It's, you make a commitment, 
and then you nourish it, you nurture it, you recommit to it, whether it's to stay sober or to whatever it is that you've made that kind of commitment to. And in Dharma practice, many of us have the aspiration to awaken. Even though we may not know what that means, as I didn't when I started, but that's not, that's okay. You, we don't know what's going to be involved in many of our journeys in life, even though we can make a commitment or we want to make a commitment to make the journey. And so we should understand that uh, this power of resolve, the uh, ability to make a commitment and to nurture it, nourish it, uh, modify it as necessary, uh, is really a living, breathing uh, thing that needs to be cared for on a daily basis. Uh, it doesn't uh, carry you without your own uh, willingness to be there. Ten years later, she did her another <laughs> month-long retreat for her 30th anniversary. And uh, I didn't bother asking her whether it was getting any easier or not. I figured it was also still hard, because it is. So we should ask, really, well, what, what, is, it that, what is it that makes resolve or making a resolve, a resolution, so difficult. Why? Why? Why is it so hard? And we don't need to look too far to see that the obstacles to resolve in our own hearts and minds are the very familiar hindrances to practice. Sometimes our resolve or aspiration is uh, undermined by doubt. Sometimes we just, you know, uh, arrive at a place of thinking, well, maybe, maybe I can't do it. And yet, there's no one that can tell you whether you can or not. It, it depends, not exclusively, but substantially on your own resolve. Or we might, upon reflection, think, well, I made this resolve to do, well, an eight-day retreat, you know, and on day four or six, when it gets kind of hard and it's hot and it's boring and your body aches and you can't, you're not really sure you're doing it right or even if, if it's worth doing, you might just wonder, well, why bother? <laughs> why bother? Why am I doing this anyway? I don't know if it's going to really get any benefit. And that kind of doubt can undermine our resolve. And yet if we don't, if we aren't practicing awareness, if we aren't practicing mindfulness and remembering to notice the way it is, the way things have come to be, then that doubt in the form of why bother won't be recognized. And you know, a lot of our good intentions I mean, we, we have good intentions to do a lot of things in life. And yet we lose steam and we succumb to a why bother? Why? I mean, this is too hard. I mean, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. And so why bother? And we don't see it. Or when we, do, or when we don't see it, when we're not aware that that's doubt appearing in the mind, 
we may uh, pull the plug prematurely. Sometimes our resolve, our resolution, our aspiration, determination is undermined by sleepiness, laziness, sloth and torpor of one sort or another. Franz and I were in the monastery together in in um, in Burma, and in this particular monastery, when you arrive, they give you the schedule, which which allows you four hours of sleep a night, only. And they're pretty on the case with no more than four hours. So it's not easy because most of us don't get by on four hours. And yet I was really determined to be there and to do the to do the program, to do the practice. And so I set my alarm, and you know I'd get up at four and kind of stumble through the first few hours until I could get a meal and keep going. And uh, you know, eventually it got to where, okay, four hours I could get up and kind of get through. But one day, I don't know what happened. Either I set the alarm wrong or I didn't hear the alarm or I don't know what. I slept five hours. And when I noticed that, oh, I got right up and get on with practice. Well, at that time, we were reporting to our teacher every day, Saito Pandita, every day. And as many of you have heard, he's pretty demanding, pretty intense, pretty uh, imposing presence to, to work with. And so I, I would always go to his door, walk in, walk across the room, do my three bows, telling, telling him what was going on. It would get translated and he'd give me back some advice. So this day I go to the door, open the door, I walk in. I don't even get across walking across the the room. He looks up at me and says, how many hours did you sleep last night? <laughs> I wanted to say, I always only sleep four, but last night I slept five. So I said, um, well, I, I slept five last night. He says, oh, please try harder. That's it. Over. <laughs> no, I'm not interested in hearing anything else about practice that day. Well, that really, I could say it really bugged me. But luckily, I was there to practice and it just firmed my resolve. I said, all right, I'm not going to sleep any more than four hours. And I just, I made the resolve in my mind. And it wasn't like I was, I was being ambitious or reactive. I just said, you know what? Wake up, get up. I'd heard this. I'd heard about this resolve. Wake up, get up. As soon as you wake up, get up. Don't, doesn't matter how much you slept or how little you slept. That's it. That's it for the day. That's it for the night. Wake up, get up. And once I made that decision, I didn't need an alarm clock anymore. I never slept four hours anymore. It was because I never slept four hours. It was just like, as soon as I woke up, it's like something just ejected me out of bed. <laughs> Of course, the beds there weren't that comfortable. <laughs> it's not like you're going to kind of lay around and kind of snooze and cruise, you know. It's like, it's a board. You know, you're sleeping on boards and with a little mat that's about, you know, an eighth of an inch thick. That's it. So it's not that comfortable. But still, you know, when you're tired, you want to sleep. And yet, I understood 
after having made that resolve, having having done that, that, wow, you know, if you really, and I was I was really determined. I was really committed to practicing in that way, and I realized that I could set my mind on a course of action unwaveringly. And it wasn't like I was being, you know, kind of macho about it or anything. It's just like you plant the seed in your mind and it sprouts every time. The opportunity's there. Well, this is really... Resolve is a mental muscle just like love is or just like awareness is or mindfulness is. Resolve is also a mental muscle. And if we train in resolve, the power of resoluteness is there for us when we need it. Okay, so later on, I was practicing with um, Sayadaw, and I was doing uh, concentration practice to attain jhana. And, you know, you're practicing and you, you, you get some kind of concentration states and he has you playing with different concentration states. And the way they do that is to train you in resolve. So you start developing resolve as the quality of mind in your practice. And so he would say, okay, I want you to do this. Just ask your mind or just plant this seed. He didn't say ask your mind, he didn't say tell your mind. Just plant this seed in your mind when you begin the sitting to do this. So I would just go, okay, do this, boom, you know, and then practice, and sometimes it would happen, sometimes it wouldn't. But as I continued practicing, it got more powerful, just resolve got more powerful, not because I was doing anything different, but I was just training in resolve. And one day I was in there, give my report, and he said, okay, now I want you to do this. And he told me something that he wanted me to resolve to do, and I burst right out laughing, saying, well, that's ridiculous, I don't, I don't even believe that's possible, you know. And he said, that's, that's okay. He says, it, you, you don't have to believe it. Just do the resolve. So you do this resolve to, to attain this kind of uh, experience. And I, honestly, I didn't believe it was possible. It just, it just, I just thought, oh, I'll do what he said, because that, I was just following his advice. And so I did the resolve. I sat down, did the resolve, closed my eyes, and within a split second, my mind did what, it asked, what I asked it to do. I got it. Resolve is a mental muscle that you can train to do, to be there for you when you need it. It's not something you do through your intention. It's not like, I'm really going to do it. And you energize and you get <laughs> you know, really excited about it. It's, it's just like any other mental muscle. It's just like any other muscle. If you train it, it'll be there for you. Most of us don't know that, that Resolve is a muscle, a mind muscle that can be developed very systematically. It can be developed so that it is there for you when you need it or when you want to want to use it. Sometimes we just get restless. You know, restlessness is the, the mind that just aimlessly wanders around in dissipated thoughts. 
resolve is the steadiness of mind not to do that. And yet still, sometimes we lose track or we lose clarity about the resolve or about our aspiration or about whatever it is we want to accomplish. And we get entangled in speculative thinking and and aimless wandering. And yet, so much of practice, just even as we've been doing it here this week, is just remembering what it is that we set out to do. You know, you sit down and you want to be aware and you want to ask yourself, where's the awareness or is there awareness or what's my attitude of mind? You want to ask yourself a few times or a dozen times a sitting and you can forget the whole sitting to do it once. That's really, that's bad wandering. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of restlessness. But when you remember, you, you can do it. It'll, it'll keep you on. You know, the, um, the uh, space shuttle that they used to send up from uh, uh, Florida to go up to the space station, you know, it's got these onboard calculators that, or computers that just calculate how far they're going, how fast they're going, and when to make adjustments. Well, I read that the space shuttle is off course 98% of the time. 98% of the time, it's not going in the right direction. And yet, it still arrives at where they intended it to go. So you have to say, well, how'd that happen? Right? Well, it's because once they see that it's off course, they make a mid-course correction to bring it back on course. And they overshoot, and they realize they're off course again, they make another mid-course. So they're off course 98% of the time. But because they make so many mid-course corrections, they still arrive at where they intended. Our practice is just like that. (laughs) You know, we try to be mindful, we try to be, you know, aware, we try to remember how to do that. We fail miserably most of the time, and yet we still succeed. So we have to be willing to make that kind of effort, resolve to make the mid-course correction whenever we notice that we're off course with our practice. And while it can be frustrating and disappointing and you know, annoying to, f- to recognize that we're off course so much of the time, you'll still get there. We will still develop these qualities of mind that we're aspiring to to develop. Strange as it seems, you know, we can we can fail at what we set out to do and succeed in reaching our goal. Hmm. So I encourage you to consider the power of resolve in your own life and in your own practice particularly. Whatever it is you have imagined might be possible for you in this practice or whatever practice you've maybe considered trying, whether it's uh, a month-long retreat or a three-month retreat or some of you have inquired about going to Asia or practicing with Utejaniya or practicing in another tradition. And while presently 
any of those may f- seem remote or in- impossible. There's just not enough conditions supporting it. It's an aspiration. It's, it's an idea. It's an aspiration you may have. And I encourage you to nurture your aspiration. Not to give up on what looks impossible today, but to nurture whatever thoughts you have about the Dharma, about Dharma practice, about your own possibilities in practice, because conditions change. And if you've nurtured your aspirations, when conditions change and the opportunity is there, the decision is all but made. But if you haven't nurtured your aspirations, you haven't kind of identified what you might want to do or you might like to try, if you haven't nurtured them when the opportunity presents itself, you don't even think of it. We all have a mind. We all have this infinite potential to develop these qualities of mind. Infinite. There's, there's, there's no one that can stop you. If you want to disentangle your heart completely from suffering and the causes of suffering, no one can stop you. If you have patience, if you have resolve, if you have energy, it's inevitable. It's just a matter of time and it'll happen. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Well, there may not be many of us here that could currently run a marathon. We know that with training, people do run marathons and, and it might be possible for us. So when Sayadaw Tejaniya says, you know, we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom more of a marathon than a sprint, he's really asking us to consider the the power of resolve uh, in our practice. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma.